Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this is Storymakers Show. Show. And today on Storymakers... We are broadcasting live from our garage. Okay, not super live, but we are here in our garage. Now, I don't know if you were inspired, Angie Powers, by... Mark Marin or Brad Listy, but I want to mention that those guys record their podcasts from their garages in the slightly or more than slightly warmer climes of Los Angeles. Oh, well. We're here in an, in an Arctic moment in Sonoma County. It's not Arctic. That's but crazy. I think, you know, we're kind of hiding out from our kids because we're all in a small space together for weeks at a time. So it was like, ooh, garage. It's like we're on a date. Mostly what I wanted to do was see if I could cultivate an NPR voice. That's more like ASMR. ASMR. <laughs> okay, stop. <laughs> so what are you working on? I am still working on middle school. <laughs> this is sort of, it's like, first you went to middle school and now middle school has come to you. It is true. So you're teaching math. Yes, continuing to teach math, um, really thinking about this whole distance learning thing, how to make the work that we do on Zoom. I mean, everybody's pretty sick of Zoom at this point. And one of, one of our time, students coined the term or Zoombies. Yes. And at the same time, you know, there are strategies to think about how you could make that connection more meaningful than we currently do. So a lot of new apps coming out right now where you can stream a film at the same time as other people and have it in sync, right? So you're showing and they're showing. Yeah, we, used to, we, used to, we used to do that in the 90s and it was called watching a television show together, but in someone's living room. Right. Well, it's the same thing. It's, it's like your we can't virtual do that living anymore. room. I know. And we're doing it. We're heading into like virtual satyrs. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, not great if you're orthodox. Um, because, yeah, because how do you turn the computer yeah. on? You go, Siri, turn the computer on, because <laughs> Siri's totally a goy. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So that's where we're at. Uh, so I am uh, finished inputting all my edits. Boy, am I a harsh editor. No, but uh, that's good. It's delightful. So I put in all my edits. And now I'm sending it off to somebody. I'm supposed to send it off by end of day today. Ooh. Because she basically has like the rest of the week. And mm -hmm. we're recording this, we should say, on Wednesday. We are we're a this, day yeah, late and... A dollar short. Yeah. <laughs> so this is our podcast for Tuesday, April 6th. It is now Wednesday, April... No, it's, it was for Tuesday, April 7th. It's now Wednesday, April 8th. It's not as bad as you thought. I don't know. It's about the same as what I thought, but I can't keep track of it. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, both really like, wow, I did it. I got through it. I made all the edits. And then, you know, it's like I have like one big thing left that's like, write the scene. And I've sort of just cut that part out. And I'm like, will she notice that like, will she notice that the other thing that happens when you edit is you make all these changes that are fixing it, mm -hmm. but it kind of roughs it up too, right? It's like you're, it's like you're slicing and dicing. And, the, and so it's kind of, it gets Frankensteinian a little bit and you have to then go and kind of smooth it out. Like, okay, I made these changes. Are they, are they running all the way through? I don't know. There's just this kind of new upheaval that comes with every, so you think you're sort of patting it down and fixing it up, but then in some ways you've also disturbed it and disrupted it. And so it does feel very asymptotic. Like mm -hmm. you're approaching, 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 
the final place you want halfway it. Halfway there, halfway there, halfway not, there. Yeah, Zeno's paradox. See, it's all about math. Who knew? <laughs> anyway, so um, I think, you know, part of it is my perfectionist uh, not wanting to let it go. And part of it is my perfectionist, you know, is on to something. <laughs> but I'm going to send it off and then fix it at the same time, I guess. And the other big thing I'm doing is looking toward what of my multiple other possible projects and pro- projects in progress do I want to focus on next because I don't want to be in the despair, despond, waiting place I want to be creating, mm-hmm. especially locked in the house and all that. I know we're not literally locked in the house, but you know. I think that there's something really important. I keep, you mentioned that I already talked about meaning. Um, last week. Last week. So, you know, we're done with the meaning. Like we, we don't, don't have to, we don't really want to ever touch on meaning Absolutely. again. Meaning is, you know, now we're back to form. Right. Um, so just what you're saying really kind of bring me, brings me back to this idea of, you know, we already had these internal critics. We already had all of these things that we threw in our own way. And then there's ways in which right now everything that's happening, we have the lenses of a previous life where we think, oh, this is how we should be doing things. And of course, we don't actually have a framework right now for how we should be doing things. We had some warm-ups, right, when we had the fires in 2017 and 2019 uh, and and what it meant to stay inside and run the, you know, air cleaners and all of that. But we don't really have a framework for these kinds of extended and extenuating circumstances. So we have a lot of expectations that are left over from, you know, early February. <laughs> That aren't really Damn accurate. Early February. Early February. You are so naive. Yeah. I saw a meme that was like a friend of mine posted on Facebook. It said, you know, January 1st, 2020, this year is my year. And then it was like, you know, March 23rd, 2020, wiping my ass with a coffee filter. Right. <laughs> uh, and th- all the things we worried about back then and early February. But I don't think we've let go of all of it, to be honest. I think we still hold ourselves to standards that have nothing to do with the situations we're currently in. The fact that we're in a hugely unknown moment, you know, we are creatures that for as much adventure, we like to kind of have an idea about what's coming next. And we think we know, even if it's negative and dark or positive and light, like we want to put together an idea and a story for ourselves about what's happening and what's going to come next, but we don't know. And that is stressful. And they certainly don't announce, we have no idea what's happening there. So, you know, I mean, in fact, somebody was pointing out that April 7th was the original sort of, we're going to shelter in place till April 7th. And so that was, that's come and gone. Um, But, you know, so there's this kind of like, let's put a date on it, even though we don't know. And that's, people don't like that. But I think, but anyway, I'm just saying like, when you're talking about your own stuff around, you know, if I do this and I get that done and whatever, and and I was mentioning to you earlier that I have had so many emails, like I'm on a bunch of email lists and, you know, I love learning all kinds of stuff. And a lot of people are like, well, now that you have all this free time. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because I have the opposite of free time. And I keep thinking, 
why don't I feel more relaxed? And I keep reflecting on this time that I, I spent at my parents' house in Mexico and I was by yourself, by myself for two weeks. It was just me and the dog. It was me and Mackenzie. And we would, you know, I'd wake up at like six o'clock in the morning and I would get up and I'd write. And then I would write until about 10, right? With a cup of coffee. And that was really sort of when I would stop. And then I would have some sort of snacky breakfast thing. And then I would take the dog into the desert until about noon, and then I would write for a couple more hours. I just, for our listening audience, I want to say Angie's sort of sort of rocking back and forth in like sort of ironic imitation of this younger <laughs> self who just thought like this was life, that life could be like this, bouncy, you know, bounce, and bounce. And so <laughs> I think that's what I'm talking about. It's like I think that when I heard like, oh, everything's going to get shut down, there was a part of me that was like, you know. We go at such a crazy speed all the time. What an opportunity. And the truth is, we're doing everything we did before, and we are much more involved with our kids' day-to-day activities and what they need to do. Not that like we're, you know, people who don't pay attention to what our kids are doing. But we, our kids, you know, are at a, were at a middle school. I mean, they still are, but virtually. But they were in a middle school that was, you know, is project-based and um, not about homework, right? All the studies Mm. show that homework, blah, 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 doesn't help at this age, blah, blah, blah. So we weren't responsible for kind of picking up the baton of their school life. I mean, now you were teaching math there. You, you know, you've, you've carried a lot of the school in, in other ways, but I think even those things for you being on the board and those things were, were also about connecting. I mean, I think one of the things the school has provided for, for our Our whole whole family is this place with people and daily routine and all of those things because we work from home and we don't have a place with people and, and all of those things that work often provides. So now, you know, you're still doing a huge amount for the school, but it's, it's, um, it's become like every other aspect of your life. It's virtual. Well, yes. And, 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 and the big, big difference just to say is that our kids were gone for six hours a day and they're not now. <laughs> that was... That was a big difference. You know, so they are... Productivity tip number one. Find somewhere for your kids to go for six hours. Exactly. Um, That's socially distanced. (laughs) But just to say that I think I have been carrying around this idea of what it was supposed to look like. And it looks like, oh, I'm actually going to let go of a few of the things that are challenging right now. I'm going to move forward on all of these like creative projects and do these other things and and Wait, the, are these the things you're letting go of? No, the things that I'm letting go of are like sort of the unnecessary stress and the things that I worry about and I'm just going to be go in of this me. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I think I just want to say like I don't know if other people had this idea, but I certainly did and I keep getting these stupid emails about really using this as a time to like dig deep and accelerate my business. And I'm like, you know, (laughs) how? It's not even how. It's not how. It's like when. Well, the same. Yeah. I mean, like I... Because how they're like, here, buy our program or whatever. And I feel super grateful. Actually, our kids are at an age where they will be increasingly independent and you know, uh, like if this lasts for years, they can they can leave home and go socially distance somewhere, somewhere else. else. But you know they're getting ready for high school and they're getting ready to move into this other space. And so 
I do appreciate the time that we have with our kids and the time that we have to do projects with our kids. It doesn't mean, however, that I have the time to do all these other things that I thought I was going to have time to do. And so when I get up in the morning and I look at my to-do list and I look at all the things that I was going to get done in this window, I have to remind myself that this was just never going to be that. And we don't have a framework for this right now. Right. And and to acknowledge that we're in crisis. Mm-hmm. And somebody put uh, sent an article um, about, you know, crisis uh, schooling is not homeschooling, right? Because mm-hmm. there's this all like, oh, we're homeschool teachers now. And it's like, no, we're not because we don't have like a homeschool program. And then, of course, homeschool is about connecting with other families and da-da-da-da. Community, da. yeah. And, and everybody's not in like constant trauma. So that's another sweet difference about homeschooling. <laughs> Yeah. And I think in most groups you have like, you know, a percentage of whatever given population is in trauma. You know what, right? You you know what I'm reminded of is like, so we, so my birth was a planned home birth, right? With like medically. Not your personal birth, the birth of our oldest. Of our oldest that I facilitated with my body. That one was, you know, we had these highly trained, medically backgrounded midwives, we were blah, we made all these plans, we did all this huge amount of processing, blah, blah. And then we met these people one time in Whole Foods in Berkeley, mm-hmm. back before Whole Foods was... Amazon. Yeah. Um, and uh, and they had had an accidental home birth. Like, the, one of them had just given birth in the doorway on the way to the hospital. <laughs> and it's like, that's kind of the way that like what we're doing right now is homeschooling. homeschooling. <laughs> Right, it's like, oh God, we're di- this is happening. It's happening right now. There's nothing we can do about it. Okay, right? Mm-hmm. And what do we do? And like, ah, heat up some water. Yeah, I know. I mean, I've been hearing from people in our family repeatedly. People keep asking me, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And <laughs> people, meaning the three of us. Yes. Yeah. Well, because people are the three people I'm interacting with, and it's I'm just concentrating. But I don't think people, like normally when I'm hanging out with the kids or I'm doing whatever, I don't have that focus, that, you know, my eyes, my brows knitted, you know, focus kind of thing. Usually I'm like, hey, I'm this person. You're happy, lucky. And it's like, how do you think I got these wrinkles? But <laughs> anyway, um, You're saying what I wanted you- to talk about, though, was sort of that that piece about meaning and sort of that piece about, you know... Don't let the standards of non-crisis time drive you crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Because those standards are unrealistic. And and we are hugely adaptive, right? People are hugely adaptive. We live everywhere. We, And because we live everywhere, you know, technology we use to adapt. We live in Antarctica. We live in the... Polar regions. We I live keep thinking everywhere. about those stories. Like, um, I think it's like Annie Dillard's book, The Living, where you know th- this family, or I don't know, if somebody arrives, this family arrives with you know with their covered wagon, or whatever, in like Washington, you know, however, 150, 200 years ago, whenever that was, mm-hmm. and and it's like they, the family that they move next door to, like have had no other neighbors. They've seen nobody else for like years, right? Oh, Jesus. It's that thing of like, we're going to go to, of course, that's not even, I'm sure that's not even true because I bet there was like a whole bunch of native people that they were actually interacting with. So that's also, anyway, yeah. 
effed up. But anyway, um, I mean, depending on where they live, but not a whole bunch, not a whole bunch, not like a whole. I think that the you know communities that had been living here for like thousands of years knew the good places to be, (laughs) and I'm not really 100 percent sure that the people who were coming from the East Coast were like, yeah, you know what, this is awesome. No, because they may not have recognized that. They were still pretty isolated and. Um, you know, and especially like the women, right. We're not necessarily going out and interacting in Mm -hmm. the same way. So anyway, but you just think about like what it was like to be that isolated. And it seems like, why would you ever make that choice? Mm -hmm. And, and yet, you know, it was, you know, even Little House on the Prairie, another problematic yet, you know, widely read text, um, you know, they're all really isolated too. I mean, they go like, you know, whatever to their Christmas make ice cream out of snow and maple syrup thing. But that's like a big, huge social occasion. It's mostly just them, like Ma and Pa and Laura and Mary. That's why you had 40 kids. Like we have always <laughs> thought it was because you were like, you know, doing a farm. But no, you had 40 kids because you were fucking lonely. <laughs> oh, God, this person's not very interesting. <laughs> All right. This just, newborn. <laughs> I'm going to get another one. Let's just work on that. Also like sharing the chores. No, it wasn't about that. I think it was. I'm waiting for that to kick in, but I think it really was. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's the myth. The myth is the kids helped with the chores. The (laughs) truth is when they got to be a certain age, they could hang out, talk with you, play cards, read books. Back then, it was, you were lonely. (laughs) This is subtext. I just want to say, revisit episode, previous episodes about subtext because... This is subtext in action. Yeah. All right. So we're going to focus on your topic today. Okay. And we'll focus on my topic next week, which is really soon because, you know, we're already late We're already late. So so this is about the Queen's speech, not the King's speech, an excellent film. But this is about the Queen's speech, yes. The Queen's speech. I was really just wanted to posit the idea. Wait, hold on. Let's set some context because not everybody watched the Queen's speech. Okay. So the Queen of England, Elizabeth Elizabeth. II, who's what, 93 now or something? Well, in 1940, she mentioned making a speech and they showed a picture of her. Broadcast. And she was like not a young child. It's just probably 10 or 11 or something. Well, if that was if that was 80 years ago, she might have been 13. There you go. So, she gave a speech, not very long, well edited, beautifully written, beautifully written. Interspersed with B-roll, which we're just, we're Donald just, we're, Trump then seemed to have personally experienced and in his shared in his next speech. <laughs> but but I want to say that like it's interesting just because you know Storymaker Show is about filmmaking mm-hmm. and storytelling in various mediums. We're at a moment where this Queen's speech has B roll. Mm-hmm. Right, Definitely. that is a, that is a historic shift. Like it would be like here's a five minute, just he, you know the talking head of the Queen would be enough, mm-hmm. but not anymore. Not anymore. I would agree, but I think they were doing something really intentional there. Showing other people. What I think they were doing, and what I thought was brilliant, is that her speech really put the person to whom she was addressing her speech in the protagonist role. And that's the thing that really... The ordinary Britain. Well, she did these things... Britisher? Britain. Britain. Yes. 
Um, but she did these things that were like this isn't about like the monarchy's great and whatever. I'm just this is actually about this is not a political looking at sort of leadership and drawing people into a cause. And you mentioned the B-roll, and I want to say like the B-roll of the Queen, no one can guess that it's anything other than super intentional, right? You would never say, hmm, I wonder who did that. There is a whole mechanism in place for having every person in the UK see themselves in her speech. And the B-roll is a vast, very, very intentional People of color, people with turbans, people, people working. working, people. I mean, so it's 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 really doing this thing where it's talking about a whole broad spectrum, but that the people who are watching this speech can see themselves in the roles and in the shoes of great people before them, right? And so she gives meaning in that speech. And again, I... I think she's an amazing person. I'm not sure she wrote that speech. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but whoever wrote that speech took the time to really think about how do you language coming together? How do you language doing the right thing as part of a personal characteristic? That we, and so she uses this thing, right? And, with, and you think about it, it's like, you know, the, the monarchy will use this plural we because they represent all, right, in their community. But this speech didn't <laughs> they, have that. They were, the, they were sort of ahead of their time in pronoun diversity. There you go. Um, oh my gosh, what, like we, like I think people whose pronoun is they and them should consider the possibility of their, of their first person pronoun being us. plural. Yeah. I love it. Oh, is anybody yes. doing that? Let us know. Write in. Yeah. So we want to know. So there is the royal we, but that's not what was happening in this speech. What this speech was, was more about who we are and... Ironically, we talked about this. This is so tied to Seth Godin's work and his... I think she's influenced by him. <laughs> but Seth Godin talks about we are the kind of people who do this. Right. So she's in a situation where she needs people to behave in a certain way to ensure the longevity of the entire country. Oh, I was like, what is the exact phrase? It's people like us do things like this. That's the Seth Godin. Okay. People, people like, like us do, do things, things like this. this. And so she's doing this thing where she, one, is saying history, and then, you know, whatever you think about the British history, that's not a small aspect of their cultural identity. History will look at our generation, this generation, as being strong as any, and there are so many mythologies, right, about these various challenges the great, that Britons the great have gone through. Generation or, well, not just was, like World War II, but World War One, and you know all you know the Jesus, like the go back Saxons. in time, right? So you you can go. I mean, they've got thousands of like years of us fighting together as a community. So she draws on that history and she puts the listener in the protagonist role. By saying, we see you. So who is we and who are you? 
So for those who are on the front lines, we thank you. Is it the queen and her royal we? Is it our community of all of Britain? For those who are staying home, right? We are also like, so like everyone in that speech got to be a hero by doing the right thing. And I think that's a really interesting thing to parse because at a time like this, we need people to see each other not as an infected risk, which is what we've been doing when there was no infection, but as part of our community. And whose behavior in staying home is as noble as the behavior of anyone else doing these other things, right? It's not the right thing to run out and try to be helpful right now. Right. Right. That's not going to be helpful. It's interesting because Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race today. Yeah. And um, and Biden quoted Sanders and said, you know, it's his thing about it's not me, it's us, right? Not me, us. So I'm, and, and that was the thing that Biden sort of picked up on. He said, we will, he, speaking to, to um, Sanders' Followers saying, um, "We, you know, we will be reaching out from you. You will be heard by us." And and as, you know, as Bernie says, "Not this is not me. This is us, or whatever." So, and that is our, you know, our real hope right now, right, mm-hmm. is to just get this incredible, the incredible sort of depth and breadth of talent that we saw come out in the beginnings of this. Right. race and and bring them together and say this you know we're, we we got to move away from from an i and i would argue though that that when we look at the semantic structure of the language that's being used i think the people who are responding to trump positively are able in whatever way like his rhetoric doesn't speak to me but it doesn't mean it doesn't speak to other people and those people, I think, see themselves in his presentation. But I think it's true. I think that that people, was my silent face making. I'm not sure is it as silent as you think. <laughs> so, so thinking about that, like as we move forward, we have to think about things like if we're going to transition from fossil fuels to renewable sources. Those people are we as well, right? The communities mm-hmm. that are actively engaged in fossil fuels have to be part of the we. Well, and just sadly to say, we are they as well. I mean, we're all actively, almost all of us are actively engaged in fossil fuels. But it's not part of our, like, for us, we don't come from a community whose entire it's not our history. Livelihood. It's not just a livelihood. Like, to under, I think that's an underestimation of why people are resistant. Like, I think. The fact of the matter is, is that coal miners, for example, did really hard work and provided really important resources to people for a really long time. And now we're saying that's over. Mm-hmm. Well, who wants to go from high risk, high importance to do you want to do something with paper? Well, like, and, now, and I just want to say, like, not it's not comparable, but as the publishing industry is facing sort of this, this, you know, all the bookstores are closed, all these new books coming out, and all the tours and whatever. Again, not not comparable to people who are, you know, like scraping a living by, you know, as coal miners or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, 
but it is another industry that is being told like, oh, you know, maybe it's the screen instead of the page. Maybe it's whatever. Anyway, so, it's just, you know, I guess I just am like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I, as you're saying that, I'm like, oh, you know, I, there's an industry to which I am extremely attached, which is in its own way struggling and in, and in other ways dismissed mm-hmm. or disregarded. And um, so I don't know. Yeah. I and mean, feels urgent and important and culturally central and vital and not something to give up on. And what if we were able to develop leadership within our country that responded to that? Yeah. So Storymaker Show is talking to you today about creating meaning. Mm-hmm about thinking about perspective and point of view. Yes. You know, which is interesting to think about kind of the way that pronouns, we talk about pronouns a lot in craft because we talk about what point of view is this? Is this a close third? Is this first person? Is it first person plural, right? These are all, is it second person? Mm -hmm. So these are all kind of craft questions as well. And they're also rhetorical. You're talking about rhetorical strategies, which are also very much a part of the craft of writing. How do we, who are we speaking to? How are we speaking to them? How are we drawing them in? I mean, these are craft questions that are a vital political importance. I would, I would argue, though, that that if you haven't seen it, go see that speech by Queen Elizabeth because I don't actually think you need the B-roll. And I think that the language itself carries so much of what we're talking about here. And it creates the frame. Like if you want to go back to George Lakoff and think about how that frame is created, we are not people who are inconvenienced by people who might be made ill. We are people who stand up and do the right thing because people we know have suffered and we don't want anyone else to. And we can measure six feet by imagining our tall uncle lying down on the ground and that we don't want to step on any part of him by getting closer to that other person in front of us in line at the grocery store. That was not part of the Queen's speech, (laughs) but I do hear what you're saying. I'm just trying to help people out here. Six feet, people, is a long way. The long and winding social distance. So it is time for Steal steal This. this. Amateur poets borrow. Professional poets steal. What have you come across in your internal wanderings (laughs) and sporadic (laughs) and jumpy readings that you want to take and make your own? All right, I just want to acknowledge that I went through this phase as this all launched in where I was listening to a lot of kind of um, airport bookstore type audiobooks, you know, kind of like like television, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is a plot, you go in, bump bum, you know, what's going to happen next? And um and with respect, with you know, with all respect, like taking me in my edgy challenged moment and throw pulling me into a story and a character and a you know a plot and all of that like bless anybody who's doing that work right it well, is it is essential work and and i just i'll let you finish in just a moment but it's a conversation i, I want to thank our students because the truth is yes meeting with them and entering the worlds that they're creating And for our listeners, I don't know what the stories are that you are creating, but just to have the folks that we meet with regularly, those are worlds I wouldn't have thought to create on my own. 
and it is opening up. You know, we we meet with them in our little backyard space and um, not in person online. Um, but it opens my world just to have those students, just to hear their stories and their thinking and their ways that they go through each of the things they go through. And the and, language and, and the imagery and all of the things that pull us into another world mm-hmm. beyond just the little square of the Zoom face. Yes. And I just, I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful that you're talking about this, you know, here we have these fake, fake divisions between, you know, what you call airport reading and, you know, literary fiction. And maybe those mattered in 1968. But they don't really matter. And the things that connect us are the things that are so important right now. And the power of the word right now, you know, I've always heard that the novel is the most intimate of forms. It's the thing that gives you insight into another person's soul. And when our souls are distanced by this whole lockdown and our only connection is through this two-dimensional piece... It's actually words that bring us so fundamentally back together. And I've talked about this before, but Elaine Scarry talks about how reading is closer to actual experience than even memory. Mm. Because reading is, um, you're being guided to to images you haven't seen before, right? And so that's what experiential observation of the world is. And you're being, you know, anyway, and your eyes are being drawn to these different things and your brain interacts and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, yes. So, um, so, and, and part of it is that incredible simplicity and focus. I mean, that's kind of what this whole draft has been about. It's just really looking at this whole story through the lens of my premise, Mm. and the power of doing that. And there's actually this depth to bringing all of these characters and the aspects of their lives that have to do with and inform this premise and the, and the seeing the story through that um, is, is very powerful. So that's, that's what I want to steal. Fantastic.